Well, I titled the sermon today, Out with the Old, In with the New. And being the first sermon of 2014, you might think it a New Year's sermon, or sermon on resolutions, but it, it's not. Rather, returning to Mark chapter 2 this morning, to a passage where we see Jesus exemplify this saying, which we associate with the new year, out with the old, in with the new. So why don't you grab your Bibles, you can open them now to Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2. What we come to find, in, in a way, is a lesson on change. And sometimes change is a necessity. In 1776, the founding fathers gathered in Philadelphia to draft the Declaration of Independence. And this document dissolved the political ties between the people of America and, and Great Britain, declaring that a new nation was born, free and independent, the United States of America. And one of the purposes of the Declaration was to justify independence. The founders sought to display just how far Britain had deviated from what a government should be. British rule was so detached from the will and the lives of the people. In time, many colonists concluded that the British government simply could not be reformed, but a new government was needed. British rule was too far gone, too far detached, so it had to be out with the old, in with the new. A new system was needed, and as we know, a new nation was born. Here we are. Sometimes you just can't cling to the old system. You have to get rid of it. The old is too far gone, too far removed from what it should be. Time comes for something new. The same thing happened during the Protestant Reformation, which really isn't the best name when you think about it. Although at first it started as a movement to reform the Catholic Church, it became pretty apparent that the church could not be reformed. Something new was needed. It was more of a transformation than a reformation. The Catholic Church was just too far gone. It was too corrupt. There was too much error. It had become this huge system that was unbiblical in many respects. And worst of all, the gospel was lost in the system. So the reformers understood shortly that they could no longer seek to stay within the church and seek to reform it from within. They had to break away and form a new church. It had to be out with the old, in with the new. In the passage we have this morning, we see Jesus share the same approach. Just like the founding fathers with the British or the reformers with the Catholics, Jesus also lived in a day where the people were dominated by this huge system. And in that time, it was known as Judaism. However, don't confuse Judaism with Old Testament religion, just like you shouldn't confuse Catholicism with New Testament religion. Not the same. Judaism had become so much more that this huge religious system that deviated from God's word in so many ways. And when Jesus came, he was not compatible with their way. Their system had morphed so much from what it was supposed to be that they were lost. Their way was not the way. And so when Jesus came, he knew that if people were to find life, they had to be freed from this system. They needed to find the real way. Only that way is not found in any of the systems of of man. A new way was needed. Jesus came, and he is the way. Jesus is the way. And what we find in the Gospels, although we witness Jesus confronting the system of Judaism, in reality, we really witness him confront all of the systems of the world. These systems go by many names, religions, philosophies, worldviews, schools of thought. But they're all the same. Their aim is the same. They try and identify and solve man's problem. And they all get it wrong. They all fall short. 
None of these man-made systems succeed in solving man's problems or in getting man back to God. They all actually further divide man from God. Every world religion or school of thought is just utterly bankrupt before God. Instead, Jesus is the way, God's way, the answer to man's problem. He's the only way. Jesus is exclusive. The gospel is exclusive. Either you have the pure, unadulterated gospel of Christ, or you have nothing. None of man's ways are compatible with God's ways. And we end up finding Jesus confronting all of the world systems in this all-or-nothing way. Either you have him or you have nothing. We find this this morning in Mark chapter 2. It's been a couple of weeks since we've been in Mark 2, so let me refresh your memory and get you back up to speed. In Mark chapter 1, we saw the official beginning of Christ's ministry, and Mark picks things back up after the arrest of John the Baptist in Galilee. We find Jesus preaching, casting out demons, performing miracles. The people love him. They're amazed by him. And by the end of chapter 1, he can barely enter a town without being swamped by the people looking for a miracle, looking to, to see some of the action. Now, when we enter chapter 2, it seems like business as usual. He's healing. He's casting out demons, performing miracles, teaching. Sounds pretty normal for Jesus. But something is different. There's one significant change from chapter 1 to chapter 2, and that is opposition. Starting in chapter 2, we see this rising tide of opposition to Jesus. We catch our first glimpses of the opposition, which would eventually claim his life. Starting in chapter 2, we find five episodes highlighting this rising opposition to Jesus. The first was chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. It's where Christ pronounces this paralyzed man's sins forgiven. Before he heals him, he says, your sins are forgiven. And immediately the religious scribes are very disturbed by this statement because, look, only God can forgive sins. So who does Jesus think he is? And in this question, they were actually right. Only God can forgive sins, but they failed to grasp that Jesus was the divine Messiah. And this opposition continues in the second episode, which is the calling of Matthew, the tax collector. And you know, it's bad enough that Jesus had to call a tax collector to be his disciple. Tax collectors were seen as the scum of the earth, they're the lowest of the low. They were sinners. They didn't belong anywhere near a rabbi like Jesus. But Jesus called Matthew to follow him and then proceeded to dine, to feast with an entire house of tax collectors and sinners. This really bothered the religious establishment because a holy man, a rabbi like Jesus, shouldn't be anywhere near such a group of sinners. In both cases, Jesus is questioned by the religious establishment because his actions don't fit their system. But every time Jesus confronts them and convicts them, essentially testifying he's not their problem. He's actually their solution. Their system is the problem. And if the people are to be spiritually healed by him, they need to break away. The establishment eventually clued into his message. They started to realize he was, he was speaking against them. He was not good for business. And they realized what it would mean for them. If his message continued, it would mean their end. They would no longer be the ones in power. They didn't like this, and so we see them start to turn on Jesus. By the end of these five episodes, 
in chapter 3, we see them leaving, going out, and beginning to conspire to kill him. And we see that to come. For now, though, here in Mark chapter 2, we find the third episode highlighting this growing opposition to Jesus. Again, he's questioned by the religious leaders. Again, he responds. Only this time, it's a little bit different. In his response, he deals this direct blow to the system itself, to their dead and damning system. They can't save. Their system can't save. Only he can save. And he lets them know in a very pointed way. It must be out with the old and in with the new. Let's read together our our passage this morning. Mark chapter 2. Look at verse 18 through 22. John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And they came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, While the bridegroom is with them, the attendants of the bridegroom cannot fast, can they? So long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the patch pulls away from it the new from the old, and a worse tear results. No one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is lost, and the skins as well. But one puts new wine into fresh wineskins. As is often the case, this altercation between Jesus and the religious leaders begins with a question. But it's really not so much of an innocent question as a cloaked accusation, a search for wrongdoing. So just by way of a a little descriptive outline this morning, let's begin with this. Number one, the suspicious search. Starts with this, number one, the suspicious search. And look at verse 18. Again, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and they came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? It's a pretty simple setup here. There's three groups, the disciples of John the Baptist, the disciples of the Pharisees, and the disciples of Jesus. Two of these groups are fasting at the moment. One of them is feasting. And the two groups don't like what the other group is doing. This question keep in mind, takes place right on the heels of Jesus calling Matthew and then feasting with this house of tax collectors and sinners. And most likely, this feast at Matthew's house took place on one of these days of fasting. And so these other two groups were fasting on that day. They see Jesus and his disciples feasting on this day, and and they don't like it. They question why. Why don't you and your disciples fast like everyone else? So first, let's talk about these other two groups and why they were fasting. You start with John's disciples. It might strike you as kind of odd. Why do John's disciples still exist? And why are they still a group? John was the forerunner to the Messiah. Here's Jesus. So why haven't all of John's disciples you know, transferred their membership to the, to the church of Jesus? We have to remember a few things. John started his ministry much earlier than Jesus, and it was huge. He had a vast influence. All of Judea went out to see him, and he made disciples far and wide. 
He was at his peak when Jesus was just coming on the scene. He made so many disciples, so far-reaching. Decades after this, the Apostle Paul would be on his missionary journey. He'd be out in Ephesus, and there he would run into a group of John's disciples who still at that point had not even heard of Jesus. That just goes to show you how far-reaching John was. And so here you have the same thing. His disciples were a distinct group. Some of them did encounter Jesus, like Andrew. And when they did, they left John and they followed Jesus. But not all of them so quickly encountered Jesus. And as such, they stayed with John. Jesus here, he's still keeping wraps on his identity as Messiah to the crowds. He purposely did not reveal himself yet. And so John's disciples remained as they were with John. But they were a good group to be a part of before Jesus. John was a true prophet. His ministry was divinely sanctioned. He sought to prepare the way of the Lord by getting people's hearts right with God, preaching a baptism of repentance, turning from your sins, aligning yourself to God and his way so that when the Messiah showed up, you would just run right into him. So those who became his disciples accepted this message. They, they turned from their sins. They were aligning themselves to God and his way. And this is our first group, the disciples of John the Baptist. We find a second group now, the Pharisees. And this is just the second time we've encountered them here in Mark. We found them first in our previous passage in Mark chapter 2. The Pharisees were a religious Jewish sect that sprung up about 150 years before Christ. Their name means the separated ones. And that's what they're all about, separating themselves from the world, from, from everything unholy. They were staunch defenders of the Jewish way of life. And they saw themselves as, as the guardians of the Torah. The Pharisees, though, they were not a political party. They were rather uninterested in politics so long as they were allowed to live according to Torah. And they, they didn't care. By the time of Jesus, the party of the Pharisees numbered about 6,000 people, which actually is pretty small. Only about 1% of the population were Pharisees, but they had this vast influence over the people. They were outnumbered by all the other religious Jewish groups. You remember the, the Sadducees, the Ascends, the Herodians, the Zealots. They were outnumbered, but they still wielded the most influence. All of these other groups would later die out especially when Rome conquered and destroyed the temple in AD 70. But the only group to survive were the Pharisees. And modern Orthodox Judaism still traces its roots back to the Pharisees. All this goes to say it might surprise you to find that Jesus actually agreed the most with the Pharisees on paper, at least with their theology. The Pharisees affirm the sovereignty of God, human accountability, the resurrection of the dead, angels and demons. They had a high view of God's word. All good stuff. But their fatal flaw was that they valued their own man-made traditions even more than God's word. They were largely responsible for building this religious system that eclipsed God's word and only ended up burdening the people beyond hope. <clears throat> The Pharisees thought this religious system was the answer. It was the way to God, but, but it was not. Time and time again, we see Jesus confronting this system and tearing it down. And in so doing, Jesus really confronts and tears down all the systems of the world. 
Because none of man's ways are compatible with God's way. For now, though, we find the Pharisees fasting. So why are they fasting? What's going on here? Fasting was one of the three main pillars of Judaism, in addition to prayer and almsgiving. Again, keep in mind, this is talking about Judaism, not necessarily Old Testament God's law. Not the same thing in many cases. The Old Testament, for instance, only prescribes one fast for the people. It's on the Day of Atonement just once a year. That's it. According to the Old Testament, you just have to fast once, once a year. But over time, this religious system was built on top of God's word, which just added these burdens to the people. And so by this time, by the time of Christ, it had gone from just one fast once a year to requiring the people to fast twice a week on Mondays and Thursdays. Two fasts a week, at least if you're righteous. That's what the righteous people did. The Pharisees, well, they are righteous, so you know they were going to observe these two fasts a week. It was their, their point of pride. Remember the words of the supposedly righteous Pharisee at the temple that Jesus recorded? Luke 18, verse 11. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other people. Swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Verse 12. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. And so on and so forth. But a point of pride for them was this twice a week fast. Of course, Jesus exposes their hypocrisy. This was not righteousness. This was just self-righteousness. To Pharisees, fasting was seen as an act of piety, a badge of honor, like a little Boy Scout who gets badges for completing works. This is one of their badges, showing people how righteous they were. But it was just for show. They were trying to look good before men, please their pride, and that's it. But there's a little problem with fasting, though, if you're trying to look holy. You see, when you fast for just one day, no one can really tell. No one can tell. I mean, if you fast for 40 days, okay, everyone's going to know. You're going to get really skinny. But if you fast just once a day or one day a week or two days a week, no one's really going to tell or be able to, to tell that you're fasting. And that's a problem because to Pharisees, what good is fasting if nobody knows you're doing it? If no one can see how righteous you are? So while fasting, they started to act and dress in a certain way so that everyone would know that they're fasting. So on the days of fasting, they whitened their faces, they put ash on their head, they wore the worst clothes they had, some shoddy clothes, they walked around as somber as possible until people noticed that they were fasting. And Jesus condemns this just hypocrisy, Matthew 6, verse 16. He says, whenever you fast, do not put on a gloomy face, as the hypocrites do, for they neglect their appearance so that they will be noticed by men when they are fasting. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you see, this is just, that's just religion. That's what religion does. This is what religion is all about. It's all about man's effort. Their fasting was just another work by which they could obtain righteousness, make God take notice of them, earn his favor, and please others. That's not how it works, though. Not only were their actions hypocritical, coming from a heart that was indeed very unrighteous, but God is not pleased by meaningless tradition. He doesn't care. 
And you can't earn any righteousness before Him at all. Nothing you can do will earn righteousness before Him. And so this entire practice, both in their motive and in their execution, was just entirely bankrupt before God. He didn't care about their fasting. For the Pharisees, to fast did nothing to make them right before God. Now before we move on, though, what makes this passage a little bit more interesting is that we also see the disciples of John fasting as well. And John's disciples, they were not like the Pharisees. You could say before Christ, you know, they were the good guys. So what are they up to? Why are they fasting? It's not for the same reason or in the same way as the Pharisees. So why are they fasting? Just real quick. Well, for one, their master, John, was just recently imprisoned, so they could be grieving. And fasting was a common way to show grief back then. Also, John, their master, was very ascetic himself, and so they could be sharing in his austerity. I mean, when your regular diet is locust and wild honey, fasting is not that extreme. It's not that big of a stretch. And most likely, though, we find the disciples of John the Baptist fasting because they were preparing themselves for the kingdom. John preached a, ba- a, a, a baptism of repentance, and his disciples were likely fasting in keeping with John's teaching because fasting in the Old Testament was associated with repentance. Most likely they were using it to orient themselves to God in a spirit of self-denial while they waited for the Messiah and the kingdom. But what we find here is we've got two groups. Both of them are fasting, but for different reasons. But now we see them come together in their questioning of Jesus because him and his disciples are not fasting. So what gives? What What is their excuse? Why is Jesus not fasting? Why are not his disciples fasting? Remember, this comes right after Jesus eating with sinners. So both of these groups thought, this is not a time for feasting. This is a time for fasting. So just who does Jesus think he is? This is the nature of their suspicious search. And now we find their search followed up by number two, the apt answer. Number two, the apt answer. Look at verse 19. And Jesus said to them, While the bridegroom is with them, the attendants of the bridegroom cannot fast, can they? So long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. Here Jesus answers their question on fasting, but in an unexpected way. He answers by introducing this analogy of a wedding feast. And, you know, ancient Jewish weddings were not like, not like weddings today. You've got a quick ceremony, a couple-hour reception, and then the, the couple is off to their honeymoon for a week. Not how it worked back then. Back then, in a Jewish village, a wedding lasted seven days, and that was your honeymoon. It was this week-long feast. The new couple was treated like king and queen for, king and queen for a week. The week was full of festivities and feasts and just celebration. And the bridegroom had several of his friends called attendants of the bridegroom. And they organized the whole thing. They were in charge of of running the show. It's like modern day groomsmen. And the point Jesus makes, it's pretty simple, that during this time, the attendants of the bridegroom, they can't fast. This is a time of celebration. It's an occasion for feasting and, 
and they're running the show, so they can't be sulking around, starving and fasting the whole week. It's not a time for fasting. It's a time for celebration. Even the Jewish rabbis understood that this was unacceptable. They even passed a law which stated that during a wedding party, all in attendance of the bridegroom were, quote, relieved of all religious observances which would lessen their joy, end quote. So these attendants were religiously exempted from fasting during the wedding week. So long as they had the bridegroom with them, it would be inappropriate for them to fast. It would be insincere because this was a time for celebration. And you can probably see where Jesus is going with this in this analogy. He is the bridegroom. And his coming is a good thing. This is an occasion for joy. The coming of the Messiah was not a somber event. This is what the Jews were hoping for. They should be rejoicing and celebrating. And this is why his disciples did not fast. They got the picture that this was a time for joy. And even right here, we can pause for a moment and learn a lesson for today, namely that discipleship is linked to joy. Following Jesus produces joy. Jesus is the bridegroom, and we, the church, we're not so much the attendants anymore as the bride herself, like Ephesians 5 says. And so even more so, his coming is reason to rejoice. There's so many dead churches characterized by this cold orthodoxy, this meaningless tradition. And so, so many people today associate church with this dull, lifeless, sullen environment. No smiling allowed in church. Where does it say that? I mean, who got that idea? And to the contrary, Christians should be the most joy-filled people on the planet, especially when they gather with one another, because together we remember what Christ has done for us to make us the bride. And that's a reason for joy. Discipleship is linked to joy. The gospel, it's such good news. It's like, it's like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man finds. And over joy for it, he goes and sells all that he has to buy that field. Matthew 13, 44, you know. See, the good news, it's worth everything. And it's something to get excited about. And with Jesus standing there before them, the disciples knew this was a time for joy. And so if you are a disciple of Christ, you should be joyful. Hearing about Christ should make your heart, you could say, leap for joy. If it doesn't, something's wrong with you. If you find yourself having no joy in life as a supposed believer, something's wrong. This is one of those little tests to help identify those phony Christians. You can come to church all you want, sing the songs, but if there's no joy in your heart as you're hearing, as you're reading, as you're singing, something's wrong because your heart should spring up with joy because of what Christ has done for you. That fruit should be hanging off of your tree. And if it's not, if it's missing, you've got a problem. Granted, this doesn't mean your life is always peachy. Discipleship comes with more trials and tribulations, so life is not always easy. But if you have Jesus, even in the trials, nothing can steal your joy from you. That's one of the the greatest marks of a true born-again believer. The disciples understood this. 
So while Jesus was with them, it was inappropriate to fast. It was a time to rejoice. But this was this would not always be the case for them. And what Christ says next would indeed come true for the disciples. Verse 20. Again, after this, he says, But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. Here we see the first hint at the death of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. It's the first first time we see it. It's like this dark storm cloud on the horizon, and it's getting closer, and you know it's coming closer, the cross. And one day it will come. When it does, then it will be a time for fasting. Then it will be a, a sullen, somber mood. And when Jesus did die, the disciples were crushed with grief by his passing, by his death. But even in this, their sadness was short-lived because as Jesus rose from the dead, their grief was replaced by joy. Once again, this time, it wasn't going anywhere. Once Jesus rose from the dead, their joy was now permanent. It cannot be taken away. Nothing can now interrupt that joy. Jesus actually comforted his disciples on the night before his death with this very truth. Before he died, he told them, John chapter 16, verse 20. Truly, truly, I say to you that you will weep and lament. He's talking about his death. But the world will rejoice. And that was true. He says you will grieve, but your grief will be turned into joy. Verse 22. Therefore, you too have grief now, but I will see you again. And your heart will rejoice and no one will take your joy away from you. Now that Jesus has conquered death and risen from the dead, the joy that he brings, it's everlasting. No one, nothing can take it away. So if you go to Jesus, like he said to the faithful slave, he will invite you to enter into the joy of your master. You get his joy, and it's permanent. Now back to Mark Jesus made this comment, verse 20, he says, they will fast in that day. Clearly, he's not opposed to fasting in and of itself. I mean, Jesus himself fasted for 40 days on one occasion. Fasting, just to show you know, fasting is never commanded in, this, in the Bible for Christians. Never, not once. You're never required to fast. But there may be occasions where it can be a profitable practice. For instance, fasting is connected to repentance and prayer. So if you find yourself really struggling with sin in life, fasting can be a way to intensify your reliance upon God. Every time you get those hunger pains, you're reminded of who God is, what he has done for you. You're reminded to pray, to seek him for strength. So there can be a place for fasting today, but it's never commanded. It must come from a willing heart. It must not be done for show. It must be done in secret before God alone, as a way just to draw closer to him. And you impose it upon yourself and no one else. That's it. But that being said, what Jesus says here in this passage, really it's not about fasting. This text, really, it's not about fasting. Fasting is just the tip of the iceberg. Just one example. They could have chosen any number. But there's a broader issue here. And these Pharisees, they've got a broader problem with Jesus. We'll see it time and time again. We're just starting here in Mark. But look, Jesus, he doesn't eat like the Pharisees do. He doesn't 
wash his hands like the Pharisees do. He doesn't observe the Sabbath like the Pharisees do. He doesn't fast like the Pharisees do. On a more fundamental level, Jesus is just different than them. His way is different than their way in more ways than one. Jesus is fundamentally different than them. And we see Jesus now continuing by exposing this fundamental difference in a pointed way. This brings us lastly to number three, the pointed parable. He doesn't stop, but he keeps going and gives now a pointed parable. Let's read this again. Verses 21 and 22. Right on the heels of this, he says, No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the patch pulls away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear results. No one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is lost, and the skins as well. But one puts new wine into fresh wineskins. Here we have a classic text, a classic parable. Many are familiar with, but many are confused by, actually. This is one of those texts in Scripture that, for whatever reason, gets twisted and mishandled all the time. I have this, I don't know why I remember this, but many years ago, Angel and I were walking in a mall not long after we were married. We walked into a bookstore. It just so happened to be after the time when this new book came out called Your Best Life Now by Joel Osteen. And I heard about it. I knew it wasn't very good, but I wanted to pick it up and just see for myself, see what it said. So I picked it up and I turned to this chapter titled Enlarging Your Vision. And he, he uses this parable to teach And so you might be wondering, how does he interpret the meaning of this parable? And to esteem, this parable was all about the need to think bigger in life, to enlarge your vision in life. I mean, if you want bigger things in life, you've got to think big. And you you limit yourself with your tiny vision in life. That's why you don't have everything you want. You need to enlarge in your vision. And he gave the example of his wife, Victoria, seeing a new home being built and then wanting a new home and saying, Joel... One day, we're going to live in a beautiful home just like that. And that's what this parable means. It's used for prosperity. I put the book down after that. I just thought, how, how can someone blow it that much? But for whatever reason, a lot of people use this passage to teach some sort of a prosperity message. This has nothing to do with prosperity. Nothing at all. It's completely beside the point. So what is he talking about? Well, let's start with the parable itself. It's pretty easy when you just stop and think and know a little bit about ancient life. You have these garments first. You have an old garment, and in the days before synthetic fibers, everything shrunk when you washed it. You wash it, it shrinks. So you have this old garment, which means it's already shrunk down. You got a hole in it, and back then you don't throw away clothes. It's too valuable. Everything just gets patched. It's, just, it's a patchwork. But you don't take a brand new piece of cloth as your patch because then when you wash the garment, that patch is unshrunk. It will shrink down and it will tear away from the cloth and it will make a bigger tear. And so you've got a worse problem. That's simple enough. Simple enough. He makes the same point with a new analogy. He says no one puts new wine into old wineskins. See, back then they didn't have BPA-free plastic bottles. What they used for these containers were the skins of goats. 
And so how would you like that as your water bottle, a goat skin? But at first, these skins were elastic, they were stretchy, they could expand. Over time, they kind of settled down, they lost their elasticity. And so here's the problem. If you've got new wine, which means it's still fermenting, and you put it in an old wine skin, the wine will ferment, which releases gases, it expands. And if you have an old wine skin that's already stretched to the max, what's going to happen? It's just going to burst. It's going to explode. And then you have a double loss. You lose the wine, you lose the wineskin. So back then, at least, everybody knew this was common back then. You don't put new wine in an old wineskin. You put it in a new wineskin, so as the wine ferments, the new wineskin can stretch and accommodate all the gases being released. Not that complicated. We actually find Jesus always using simple, true-to-life analogies to teach truth. But that's our question, though. What is he really teaching by this? What, what is his point? And one thing is very clear. Jesus is no Martha Stewart here. He is not simply trying to give tips on homemaking. It's not just, you know, winemaking 101 or sewing 101. That's not his point. That should be obvious, I hope. But he's continuing to explain why his disciples are not fasting, but in a much more fundamental way. He's showing his difference in a much more fundamental way. And in this, his point is actually still pretty simple. And so what is it? It is the incompatibility of the old and the new. Just keep, keep that in mind. The incompatibility of the old and the new. The new and the old, they don't mix. They can't mix. If you put them together, you get disastrous results. The new patch, it belongs with the new garment, the new wine. It belongs with the new wineskin. They can't be accommodated to fit the old. They can't be adjusted. There's no compromise here. They just don't belong with the old. So here's the deal. Big surprise. Jesus is the new wine. He is the new patch. And guess what? Judaism, the way of the Pharisees, they are the old wineskin. They are the old garment. And the lesson here is that Christ's way does not fit their way. Jesus does not fit their system. He cannot be made to fit their system. In fact, he breaks it. I mean, why? Why is this? Remember, what was their system all about, the Pharisees? It was all about human effort, what you can do, what you must do to be righteous, to earn God's favor. The problem with this is that no one is righteous. No one is righteous. So when you have this system, what you end up getting is just a bunch of self-righteous hypocrites. That's the only conclusion you can get with a bunch of unrighteous people trying to earn God's favor through works. None of us are righteous. You only get a bunch of self-righteous hypocrites. And really what we find in this ancient Judaism, it's, it's typical of all of the systems of the world. And that's what they were all about. Human effort, empty rituals, dead tradition. But these mean nothing to God. He, he doesn't care. They don't earn his favor and they all utterly fail in solving man's sin problem. All of man's solution to the problem are, are no solution at all. It simply produces a false self-righteousness, which only ends up blinding people to their real need. Something new is needed. 
Jesus, is that something new? God knew that that we, humanity, were, were dead and lost on our own. He knew that we would resolve to making our own systems, but they would do nothing. So he sent Jesus to provide that something new, that the way, the way of redemption. And in this way, it's not about what you can do. It's about what he did. It's not about what you can provide. It's about what he accomplished for you on the cross. Because it was on that cross that Jesus paid your penalty, provided you with this perfect righteousness, and now he offers you this redemption if you would turn to him in repentance and faith. He gives you salvation, free, by grace. You, you don't earn it, you don't deserve it, you don't work for it. There's no nothing you have to do. You don't get it by coming to church or reading the Bible. There's no act for it. And really, you see the fundamental difference between the old and the new, or really the ways of the world and the way of Christ. Fundamental difference, grace versus law. Grace versus works. That's what it is. You can't do it yourself. That's the message. You can't. You can't do it yourself. You can't save yourself. You can't fix yourself. You can't make your life right before God. You have sinned. You are condemned. You need grace. You need mercy. Your only hope is that God would provide that. He has. The Pharisees were blind to this. So are all of the systems of the world today. They still think they can reach God on their own. And in this, they are actually kept from God. But learn from this pointed parable a a simple truth. The way of Jesus and the ways of the world are incompatible. They don't mix. You can't put them together. Legalism and man-made traditions have no place with the gospel of grace. There's just no harmony. Instead, Jesus came to replace the rigid rituals of religion, self-righteousness, and legalism with the gospel of forgiveness, grace, and mercy. And that's the new wine. And that is, mind you, why Jesus came. He didn't even try and reform Judaism. He was not a reformer. Do not think of him as a reformer, rather as a transformer. Because he knew their system was dead and gone. It had no hope. Not even worth trying to fix. You couldn't even patch it together. Their system was bankrupt. It had to be out with the old, in with the new. A new system was needed, but rather, not a system, a way, a person, Jesus was needed. You know, there's really a legitimate reason why all of history is divided into B.C. and A.D. That's that's actually, there's a good reason for that. Jesus came bringing such a new way that we just had to change our entire calendar to say before his way and after his way. And all the world doesn't really get that anymore. It's actually legitimate. The question is, do you accept this? Have you turned to him? Are you living with and for him? Are you still living as if it's B.C.? And after Jesus, early in the church's history, some groups, they tried to do this. They tried to append Jesus to their old system. They tried to take the new patch and put it on their old system. One of these groups was called the Judaizers. Remember them? You heard about them? They were Jews who said they accepted Jesus, but they sought to cling to their system. And and guess what happened? They burst. 
It just it didn't work. Like the new wine and old wineskins, they just exploded because you can't have both, law or grace. It's an either or. You can't put them together. One will kill the other. So you have to choose. Like oil and water, they don't mix. The way that Jesus brings is revolutionary and unmixable with the philosophies of the world. Still, though, even today, people try and mix Jesus with their own beliefs. They, they favor Jesus. He's this religious figure. He makes their life better. But they still try and live by themselves, for themselves. It's still about them, what they can do, what they can get. It's still them. Jesus is just a figure and nothing more. And take, for example, the Catholic practice of Lent which is actually almost an exact parallel to what the Jews were doing in this passage. You have this imposed 40-day fast. It's found nowhere in Scripture. And what's its purpose? It's penitence. It's works, self-righteousness. It's a, it's a void tradition that means nothing to God. I mean, how many Catholics do you know who trivialize Lent? They abstain from, you know, chocolate for 40 days or soda. It's just it's just like kind of a joke to them. I actually knew one guy in college who infused wickedness. He, he said he would abstain from you know, premarital sexual relations for 40 days. Really? And that's just what religion produces. That that's religion for you. Don't fall into this error. It comes in many forms. It's just one example. There are many, and they can be right in this building too. There are many forms of this religion. But learn the lesson you don't need religion. You don't need religion. You don't need these old, dead systems of the world. You need Jesus. You need relationship with God. And it comes only one way in Christ. Be his disciple, follow him, repent, believe. Then you'll find a real reason to celebrate, to have joy in life. And now that Christ has risen, that joy is everlasting. It cannot be taken away from you because you have grace, you have life, you have him. For those in Christ, life doesn't mean it's easy, but we do get to look forward to, to this. Revelation chapter 19, verses 7 through 9 describes that future time when Christ returns. And who does he return for? His bride, the church. And this time is referred to as the marriage supper of the lamb. It's a wedding feast. The marriage supper of the Lamb. We're there. It's a time of what? Of joy. Joy that will never end. Let me close by reading you this passage. Revelation 19, 7 through 9. It says, Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, Write, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are true words of God. Lord in heaven, we, we do look forward to that time when Christ returns and our joy is turned from, from hope into sight. Our faith becomes not just living but, but complete. Christ, we long for your return when you will come back for your bride and, and bring us into your, the joy of your presence, no longer anticipation, but then fulfillment and being with you forever. 
Lord, this is all by grace. We have you. We have this life with you just by grace. We, we did not earn or deserve this. We cannot do anything to earn or deserve this, but by grace you have given us this gift. It brings joy, but it also brings a new life. How can we still live in the ways of the world now that we have been given so much? I pray that we live changed lives as a result. Not clinging to the old, the dead, the systems of the world, trying to please you to earn your favor. Rather, Lord, we still want to be holy. We still want to please you. But it's simply by your grace, for your glory, because we love you. We thank you for all you've done for us. As we leave here this morning, may we rejoice in what has been given to us now and forevermore. In your name we pray. Amen.